with racism. I mean, it was blatant racism in South Carolina. Experience being called the N-word um, by, by, you know, two white men my first month in the city. My parents will always say, when we had race talks, we always, but I was like, yeah, that, is, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm an athlete, I'm, I'm a good student. Like, yeah, y'all just, okay, that was back in your day. And so when it happened, it was like, yo, okay. Y'all was in line. From what I experienced moving to South Carolina and then coming to Milligan and, and really kind of growing individually and personally, I really just was, was really on fire about justice, being conscious of my race and who I was as a black man, but also somebody who loved the Lord and also wanted to, to you know, impact change, but also also in ministry wanted to bring my own flavor and my own thought that I felt it was not, um, not heard. So you have South Lawndale and you have North Lawndale. And uh, South Lawndale is also known as Little Village. And so North Lawndale is primarily now about 95 to maybe 97% African-American. And Little Village is the opposite. It's about 90, 99% um, Mexican-American. And so the communities, the two communities historically have been very divided. Greetings and welcome to the Unleashed Generosity Podcast, exploring the intersection of faith, service, philanthropy, and community. I'm your host, Aaron Scott. Hey everyone, thanks for joining me for episode four. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that you can listen to all episodes of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or at www.unleashgenerosity.org. You can also find our social media feeds on our website, and we have accounts for Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'm really excited to share today's conversation with you with my friend, Terrence Gadsen, who I've known going back to my college days at Milligan. As I mentioned in episode three, I think it's especially important right now to be listening to the voices and stories and perspectives of African Americans. Terrence is somebody whose perspectives on race relations and racial justice and racial reconciliation in the church and in society as a whole, I really respect. And so I was so excited that he was willing to do this interview. Uh, the interview is pretty long, and so I want to jump into it pretty quickly here. Terrence has lived in four very different parts of the U.S. over the course of his life, including very rural and very urban settings. And we unpack how each of those settings has influenced his approach to living out his Christian faith. Terrence is a youth minister. He was a college athlete. He's a hip-hop DJ, DJ Rockon, whose music you've already heard in the intro introduction and whose music you will hear more of sprinkled throughout the episode. A husband, father of two, currently working on his doctorate of ministry degree at North Park University in Chicago, where he also serves as part of their campus ministry team. He's got a unique perspective on urban community development and how the church can play a role in that important work. And you're going to hear about all of those things in our wonderful conversation. Terrence, welcome to the Unleashed Generosity podcast. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's good to connect. So uh, share with us a little bit of your background. Yeah. So uh, Terrence Gehazin, born and raised in Tin Falls, New Jersey, which is a small suburb 
about um, an hour and 20 minutes from the Bronx, New York. Uh, my, my parents were from South Carolina, are from South Carolina and North Carolina. My dad from South, my mom from North. Uh, they migrated uh, back in the late 60s, uh, like many African-Americans from the South, just escaping the Jim Crow South and uh, had, wanting to have a better opportunity to raise their family and jobs and all that. And so one of four, four children, and so um, we were born and raised there. I had two older brothers and sisters. They've, they've, they've since gone on to be with the Lord. And um, they were nine and 11 years older than me. And so grew up right in the heart of uh, where hip hop kind of started, kind of that area, tri-state area of New York, Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, started loving hip hop. And um, we moved to South Carolina. And uh, after my freshman year in high school, my sister, my twin sister and I moved to South Carolina and uh, finished high school there. And then that's where I was recruited to uh, run cross country and track and field for Milligan College. And so that's how I got to Milligan, man, back in 1999. And Milligan College, our beloved alma mater, is now Milligan University. So tell us about moving to South Carolina. Yeah, it definitely was culture shock. My, my parents, you know, we visited South, South Carolina, North Carolina uh, numerous times growing up. But, you know, living is different than visiting, you know what I mean? And so we literally lived on an island. It was called Wamala Island, uh, right mm-hmm. outside of Charleston. So my, my father, on my father's side, were Gullah Geechee. So Gullah is West African and, and African-American. So... So it was, a, it was a dialect of learning the Gullah language, also um, a slower pace of life, and um, just kind of starting all over, you know, starting new high school. Um, everything was so new, and my, I'm thankful I had my twin sister, so we experienced it together. Yeah, so it was difficult um, with racism. I mean, it was blatant racism in South Carolina. I experienced that. Uh, I experienced being called the N-word um, by, by, you know, two white men my first month in, 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 in the city. And um, so we, we, we saw the Confederate flags being flown. It was like a normal thing. And so we hated it. We were like, well, let's leave. Um, but I think it was all just part of the, the God's plan and how we were, were supposed to be there. My dad always wanted to retire there. He just retired a little earlier than was planned. And so we learned a lot. We grew a lot and also learned uh, to learn about, our, we loved our culture. The Gullah culture is something that we learned a lot about. Well, that's crazy. So how you would you were a freshman in high school when would you say that was your kind of first experience with like a racist sort of experience and then did that open your eyes to what it might be like to be a black man in America in a new way or in a new dimension that you hadn't really experienced before when you were in New Jersey? Yeah, I think about my father telling you know when he told us growing up about the South it was kind of yay I guess it was that bad you know we didn't believe him but when we got there it was like yo. This is what my dad had to endure. And this is what, you know, this is a small nugget of what, what my parents had to endure and people like Dr. King and other great civil, like, civil rights leader had, leaders had to endure. So it was kind of like, it was, it, was, it, was, it was eye-opening for us, for sure. Kind of like the norm, it was like accepted. That was how, you know, people talked and you stayed in your place. And so we, we were definitely fish out of water because we, we were like, no, we're not, that's not cool. Yeah, like cognitive dissonance for you? I mean, because there'd be one thing to think about, like, okay, my dad experienced racism, but that's when he was, you know, a young man. And I mean, it's like the mid-90s now. I'm in high school. Like, I shouldn't be being called an, an N-word. Yeah, exactly. It, it was, before that moment, I was naive. Like, probably adopted the fact that we were living in a post-racial society, you know, because of yeah. what the civil rights movement did. 
So, but it was it was a wake up call for me and my sister. But like, yo, racism is real, and it helped us to understand that it was always present in the north, like New Jersey, but it was maybe institutionalized and it wasn't, you know, just overt, you know, and blatant. Yeah. And um, it just woke me up. I was like, yo, okay, wow, this is real. And I slept on, I really slept on what my parents were saying. You know, my parents would always say, when we had race talks, we always, but I was like, yeah, that, is, that doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm an athlete, I'm, I'm a good student. Like, yeah, y'all just, okay, that was back in your day. And so when it happened, it was like, yo, okay, y- y'all, was, y'all wasn't lying. <laughs> right. So it's for real. So you mentioned being an athlete. You know, you ended up running at Milligan. You were recruited to be an athlete. Tell us about that process of, you know, choosing to, to be at Milligan and how that came about. So, yeah, so I was recruited, ran cross-country track, did really well my, my last several years in high school. And um, um, I really wanted to go to either the, the, the Citadel, which is the military college, South Carolina, or uh, Charleston Southern. They recruited me really heavily. And uh, they basically said they had no scholarship money for me. So I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do now. So I had to really just rededicate my life to what was important and to, and to, to the Lord. And so um, as I was getting ready for a track meet, my high school coach handed me this, this letter, said, hey, Milligan College, and where Christ is exalted and excellence is the standard. And so I was really like, wow, this is a Christian university. Is this real? About two weeks later, we were going to be going to Knoxville, Tennessee, participate in the Taco Bell track and field classic. So, um, so it was, it was kind of like, I felt like the door was opening up for me. And uh, it was a God, like one of those God things where I couldn't really explain it. And um, it just kind of worked out. We did really well at the meet and, and found out it was like, okay, Milligan is Milligan University is like, you know, hour, maybe two hours away. And uh, yeah, they offered me a scholarship. And um, my dad was like, I guess, I, I guess, you know, where you're going. And it was like, <laughs> you know, you, you, that's the only offer you got. Yeah, that's where you're going. So uh, we'd never visit the school. I'm first generation college student. So they were like, why go and visit when you're going to be there in three months, you know? Yeah, I was excited, but I was also a little fearful as well, because I, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. <laughs> right. So another transition. I mean, I'm going to go to the Johnson City, Tennessee. Like, where is Johnson City, Tennessee, where I'm moving to kind of a place that's an unknown? Um, and did you have a sense that Milligan was as sort of had such limited diversity at that time? Or was that kind of something that you realized once you arrived on campus, that it was a predominantly white student body yeah another another crazy transition um i did a little research about johnson city and elizabeth and, and johnson city i found out was three percent african-american so i knew i was going to be one of the only few brothers <laughs> around and um i just remember moving going into the city and uh arriving on this campus and i was like yo where's everybody at like man just not seeing black people was crazy for me, you know, even South Carolina being almost 50% African-American and in Jersey, all this diversity. Um, I just, just wasn't in Johnson City at all. And, um, you know, I remember going to a grocery store, Kroger, and just the first thing I said to an African-American uh, person that I saw was like, man, where do you get your hair cut? Like, where do you buy your products from? So it was definitely um, a lot of culture shock. And um, I honestly, it was, it was really was make it. hard to be in an environment where you're the only like one of the few African-American um, people, you know, just from, from the classroom. Um, I think everyone tried to, you know, there are some people that you definitely on campus, they, you could te- definitely tell that they never had a, any relationship with a person of color, a black person before. 
Um, yeah. Some people just didn't didn't know how to have a conversation with me. And was, that, yeah, one of those people that didn't know how to have a conversation with an African-American very well could have been me. And so I cringe a little bit thinking about what my 18-year-old self might have been like interacting with you because I grew up in a predominantly white, you know, suburb of Cleveland. And I knew like one black guy that went to my home church. And uh, that was about it. And then Milligan, for people that, you know, providing some context for people that are listening, Milligan is in Johnson City, very, very predominantly white community. Mm -hmm. And then outside of that, it's not like Milligan is in the middle of Johnson City, like in the city proper. It's kind of out in the outskirts of the county surrounding the city, kind of Mm -hmm. between the cities of Johnson City and Elizabethan. So in some ways, the campus is its own bubble. Right, where you're interacting mostly just with the other members of the student body and the faculty staff. And Milligan was a almost exclusively white community. You were an 18 or 19 year old kid too, just trying Mm -hmm. to figure out how to be an adult, how to be a college student. What what do you recall about that time? Yeah, I think that a great analogy would be for those who've who've seen the show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with Will Smith. You had Will Smith, who's this African-American, brother who is moving to Bel Air, this white, predominantly white community. He has a cousin, Carlton, right? And Carlton kind of adapted to this, this white culture. And so I think for me, I, I was wrestling, do I, do I, do I be, do, am I Will or am I Carlton? Um, but I wanted to be myself. So I've realized I needed to be myself. But I thought the, also one of the things that was, was hard is that when you go to a, a predominantly white institution and the institution's curriculum is, is very Eurocentric and you know, they don't celebrate holidays like Dr. King. I mean, you feel like an outsider. You feel like you're not included. The faculty of staff, there was only one, and he was, uh, Dr. Kariuki, you know, much props to him. You know, he was African, he was from Kenya. So there really were no African-American, you know, professors. And there also were no African-American um, uh, women on my, my class, my freshman year. So it was just like, it, 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 I felt like I was on an island. The chapel was white. It was everything was like so white and it's so like wow. Where's the inclusiveness? Where's where do I fit in? Is my, is my voice even welcome? Did you think about leaving? Like, were there times where you felt like this wasn't gonna work? That's a great question. So I thought about two things. I thought about my father, <laughs> who was like, "Yo, where else you gonna go? You're like, this is the only school you got accepted to." Um, but also, I had some really good. Um, brothers, man. So shout outs to Daniel Kariuki, uh, Michael Mare, um, DeMarco Kidd, Michael Thompson. They, they kind of held me down. You know, they were like, you won't, you're going to make it. Like, it's hard. No lie. I would go back to my, my dorm room. And when my roommate was out of the room during lunch, I would go in my room, play some Kurt Franklin or some gospel. And I just would have my own praise party. I'd be crying like, Lord, how, yo, how, help, I don't know how I'm going to make it. Like you said, you're a first-generation college student, and there's a ton of research about how first-generation college students, regardless of the color of their skin, struggle to succeed. And it's some of these kind of barriers that they don't get the culture of higher ed. Mm -hmm. And you start to see some of these things that are obstacles for people that don't have access to resources and people who... Um, have not had the same opportunities as other people, whether that's because they're a minority or LGBTQ students or whatever, people that just feel like I don't belong here. Those are real factors that people feel like, well, I just, you know, it's too hard. I can't do it. So you came to Milligan to study Bible. Was that a reason you stayed? Milligan was at least a place that you could, uh, you know, cultivate that calling to ministry. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that was another thing that kind of kept me kind of grounded. I knew my my major was going to be biblical studies with youth ministry focus. And so, um, and I, I just knew that from the story, how everything was evolving, that, you know, God had this crazy plan and I was on this ride with him and I didn't know how, I didn't know how I was going to end up, but I, I knew that that was, I, I was there for a reason. Milligan has a, a cr- incredible, you know, academic portfolio. I mean, you're definitely going to be stretched. So I felt like I was learning, growing in my faith, but I think at the same time, I, I wanted more of, of my culture seen and represented on, on the campus. What I was thinking about the kingdom of God and how everyone's, you know, accepted, I just wasn't seeing that, that biblical kingdom represented on campus, that, you know, physical, yeah. diverse, diverse thought, but also diverse body. Another, like, more subtle example, maybe, of institutional racism that maybe wasn't even intentional would be what was going on at Milligan when we were students, Martin Luther King Day. Yeah. So tell us about that. Looking at the, the, the syllabus, and uh, we realized that yeah, MLK Day wasn't on any, like, that wasn't a day off. And so I, I remember seeing that, and I'm like, wait, let me go check with some upperclassmen. So I, I asked them, I said, yo, DeMarco, are we, are we do, does Milligan celebrate this holiday, MLK? And he was like, he said, nah, they don't. We had these ideas of what should we boycott, should we, what should we do? And so we finally said, yo, let's write a letter to the school newspaper. Let's write yeah. an art- article and just get everything out in the open. So we did that in the stampede and, and, and um, we, got a, we got a call from the dean's office and they called all of us in. And so uh, they wanted to hear what we had to say. And we said, yo, how, how can we be a Christian institution? And uh, we talk about God and all this other stuff and, and loving everyone. And we don't even honor somebody who was a pastor who was a minister. Uh, Dr. King Day. They immediately said, okay, let's, let's do something for February. And so we, we, in, we ended up doing uh, kind of a rinky-dinky Black History Moment, um, <laughs> uh, you know, convocation. And I think a lot of my white friends who came, I felt like they came because like out of, uh, we got to support, we, gotta, we don't want to be racist, we don't want to come off as racist, so we let's support. Um, but you know, one thing it did, it opened our eyes, um, particularly my eyes, to see that that although the school wasn't trying, quote unquote, trying to be racist, or they right. had a lot of, um, you know, institutional racism. Things changed a few years after, like for real, for real, after we left. But it was, it started to open my eyes that the school had a long ways to go. And um, I think they were open to some of the ideas, but I think at a slow, slow pace, you know? Yeah. And, and those conversations are continuing. And, you know, you've been a part of that change by kind of not uh, leaving or giving up or quitting or demeaning people for saying, like, how can y'all not do this? But saying, like, look, if if we're Christians and we believe in the 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 beauty and the diversity of, of all God's people from different cultures and different races, then shouldn't we be celebrating that? You brought some of those issues to light in a way that maybe the Milligan community could kind of recognize some of that institutional racism that needed to change. And and things have changed. You know, Martin Luther King Day is now a day that's off. Students do volunteer service. Mm -hmm. They made an intentional push to bring more diversity to campus by incorporating the GOA Diversity Scholarship Program. There's ongoing conversation now in light of the recent, you know, racial justice conversations in our country. And I think the student body, again, is is pushing. And I think there's dialogue about what can Milligan be doing more of. Mm-hmm. And I specifically remember that you, you leading a chapel service 
mm-hmm. where you were talking about sort of racial justice and racial reconciliation. How was that a formative experience for you in light of like preparing for ministry? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for asking a good question. Um, so campus minister, Nathan Flores, shout out to Nathan. He, I don't know how he found out that I, I loved hip hop. I loved to dance and I was really art into art. And so he asked me several times, um, he asked me to be a part of chapel. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, from what I experienced moving to South Carolina and then coming to Milligan and, and really kind of growing individually and personally, I really just was, was really on fire about justice and, um, you know, being conscious of my race and who I was as a black man, but also somebody who loved the Lord and also wanted to, to you know, impact change. But also, also in ministry, wanted to bring my own flavor and my own thought that I felt it was not, um, not heard. And so he allowed me to get in the pulpit and to, to do kind of whatever I wanted to do in a, in a, in a constructive way. I DJed in chapel. Um, I used a lot of hip hop and I talked about justice issues. Um, yeah. And I think it prepared me for my ministry when I, when I moved to Chicago, you know? How did you end up transitioning to Chicago then? And uh, where did you land in Chicago? So yeah, my end of my junior year, Dr. David Roberts, he suggested that I, you know, hey, check out Chicago. We all had to do an internship. And so he had um, a connection to uh, the Chicago ministry in Lawndale, Chicago. And so he, he made the connection. It was Lawndale Christian Community Church on the west side of Chicago. So I did my internship there for the summer of 2002 and uh, really a, a, a ministry that was about loving neighborhood, loving the community, and really being a, a, a light in the community. And so a church that started a health center, a development corporation, and a drug rehab uh, center for men who were struggling with alcohol or being who were just released from prison. So this church was really doing things I'd never seen done before. Yeah. Um, and a beacon of light in a community that really needed hope and light. And so, so Dr. Roberts sent me there. And I always say that they sent me to a place that changed my theological perspective mm-hmm. and also just my ministry perspective. I mean, it changed my life personally as well. Relationships, people yeah. that I met there were in my, student with me, my wedding, you know, so it, it was, it was, it changed my, my life. And, um, you know, I'm still connected to that ministry in some ways. And after my internship, I came back to school, finished, and then found that they were looking for a full-time youth pastor. I applied. Yeah. And then moved there. And then, you know, so I was a year behind you. Greta and I graduated from Milligan, got married, and then we moved to Chicago the next summer. And uh, Greta was studying at DePaul. So we were in the same city, even though we were, gosh, a good probably hour and a half drive from each other. We were on the north side. You were on the west side. So we, we were able to reconnect. And I learned a little bit about the Lawndale community and was really impressed, like you said, with their idea of this wasn't just a church. This church then was really about economic development, community development, lifting up people, giving people an opportunity to better their lives. Church isn't just about where you come to on Sunday morning for worship. Church is about being the people of God Mm -hmm. in this neighborhood and sort of incarnating good news for bringing about the kingdom. For people who aren't familiar with Chicago, tell us about the Lawndale community. Um, what, what types of challenges does that community face? And uh, tell us more about your role specifically in youth ministry. Yeah, so North Lawndale um, is located, like you said, on the west side of Chicago. Um, it used to be a Bohemian community and then a Jewish community. At one point, it was the 
largest Jewish community in the city of Chicago since since um, the 60s, early 60s, um, when white flight happened, when African Americans started really migrating from from the south to the north. Um, mm-hmm. You saw a lot of a lot of whites and also Jewish people moving out of the city, particularly North Lawndale. North Lawndale also was the headquarters for Sears and Roebuck. And so Sears and Roebuck was right there in the heart of uh, Lawndale. So at one point, North Lawndale had about 125,000 people lived in in that neighborhood. Uh, Now, there's about 40,000 people. So a lot of like rundown, vacant, abandoned properties? Yeah, there's a lot of vacant properties. So in 1966, Dr. King and his family moved to North Lawndale on 15th and Hamlin, really to highlight the injustices that were happening in the city, um, and also the the, the slumlords that were um, really kind of taking advantage of the people uh, in North Lawndale. And so mm. the, the community, particularly after he was assassinated in 68, really took a downward spiral. Um, you saw a lot of, again, jobs leave the neighborhood. Um, you saw a lot of, um, in addition to that, you already had redlining. For those who are not familiar with redlining, yeah. the government played a really big part on um, uh, not allowing people, certain people, African-Americans to have and own certain properties. That's why you see the South side of Chicago, particularly uh, heavily populated with African-Americans. The value of the community went down, um, jobs went down, and, and then really hopelessness, hopelessness you know, came in the community. And yeah. so um, you really have not seen a full recovery since, since Dr. King died, you know, was, was killed in 68. North Lawndale was uh, the 15th poorest community in, in the country. Wow. And, um, and so this church, um, um, Lawndale Community Church, was established in 1979 by high school students who said, hey, you know, uh, we want to have a church. And I, the, the pastor was a, was a high school teacher uh, at, huh. at um, Farragut High School, the high school that Pat Sajak went to. Um, those, those don't know. Um, so Farragut High School and also where Kevin Garnett graduated from. And so he was a high school teacher, but also was he, he was a football coach. And so he was just doing Bible studies with him and his wife. And uh, he asked the students why they don't go to church. And so they said, hey, we don't go to church because uh, they passed the offering plate. We don't have money. Um, hmm. They wear suits and we don't have suits. And so, um, and so they said, hey, won't you start a church? And so they started a church that, that didn't, have, didn't pass around the offering plate, didn't have dress codes, and just hmm. focused on loving, uh, loving their neighborhood. Medical student at the time, who was studying medicine at University of Chicago, felt like he was being called to um, overseas medical missions in, in Africa. And then as he was living in, uh, living in Chicago and coming to North Lawndale, felt like God was actually calling him to that neighborhood. And so mm-hmm. he was able to, um, Art Jones um, was able to help kind of start, it, start the health center. Yeah, talking about the idea of redlining and how policy, again, can perpetuate and even reinforce or make access to resources worse or can, you know, can make it more difficult for communities or neighborhoods or families to get out of poverty because the value of certain properties in a, in a neighborhood that's already having declining property values and more abandoned properties and then jobs leave that community and then you know these things kind of pile on top of one another but in the midst of this kingdom work right this is kind of where god works god finds opportunities on the margin god finds the people that uh, nobody else seems to be interested in or no nobody thinks that there's anything that's good is going to come out of nazareth right that's where god historically in the biblical narrative finds uh, the people that he works through most often are kind of the outcast or the despised or the people that 
nobody else thinks is worth their time. And I, and I think that's one of the powerful, beautiful things about what happened at Lawndale is that you really just had this grassroots people saying like, hey, like, why not here? Like, let's come together and just try to love on each other. Uh, yeah. Let's just try to be the kingdom of God as best we know how. And then you have people like a doctor studying at the University of Chicago who comes in and starts this, uh, this medical clinic. How, how did something like the clinic serve as a tool to break down barriers between people groups? Yeah. So um, one thing I didn't mention is that Lawndale is broken up into two halves. So you have South Lawndale and you have North Lawndale. And uh, South Lawndale is also known as Little Village. And so North Lawndale is primarily now about 95 to maybe 97% African-American. And Little Village is the opposite. It's about 90, 99% um, Mexican-American. And so the communities, the two communities historically have been very divided. Language barriers, but also cultural barriers and, and also gang, gang territories. So the clinic really served as a as a bridge for people who were, you know, sick, um, you know, because sickness doesn't discriminate, <laughs> would, you know, have really no choice but to come to and through, um, you know, North Lawndale. And so there was a, uh, there was a real connection there because the church was, was, was in the same building where the clinic was. And so, and so people would, would come to the clinic and then there was opportunity for a dialogue and there's some opportunity for relationships to be, to be built. The clinic serve, they, they serve as a bridge to really bridge that gap uh, between two people groups who, who probably would never meet because if you're, if you're African-American living in North Lawndale, you really don't have a real need to go to the little village uh, and vice versa. Like, you know, there's, there's really no reason for, for uh, Latin Americans to come over uh, to Mexican Americans to come over to North Lawndale. So there was a real lot of ministry and it still is still to this day, even amidst the, the, the riots, there was a lot of bridging happening and um, reconciliation happening. And I had the opportunity to live in little village in 2005 when I was mm-hmm. having my house built and so a good friend of mine, I met him at a conference and we found out we lived literally, we met in uh, New Orleans and we found out we lived two blocks away from each other in, in Chicago. And so we became um, good friends. He was youth pastor at a church called La Vita Community Church. I was youth pastor at North Lawndale. Uh-huh. And uh, he worked for also at Moody Bible Institute. And so um, yeah. when my house was being built in North Lawndale, he said, hey, won't you live with me? He lived at the church. And so I lived in the church uh, in La Vita, and uh, we just had amazing, cool. amazing, amazing kind of time learning and, and learning about the community and just doing ministry together. So, um, yeah. Which is another sign of the idea of diversity. I mean, it's not about white, black sort of thing, racism, but like there were, there were divisions between a Latinx community and a black community and a lot of racial tension. How do you overcome that? I mean, so you guys were trying to overcome that by doing something simple like provide healthcare. Healthcare that's open to anyone from any background is welcome at the clinic. Um, and that kind of hospitality and generosity and showing love to anyone saying like, hey, you're a human being. We wanna make sure people have access to the care they need to stay as healthy as possible. It becomes a tool for breaking down the barriers between people that maybe, like you said, had no reason to want to go and cross that line and interact with those people, you know, both sides are saying that. And yet the church establishing something that's, that's a neighborhood resource, like a healthcare center, 
can serve as a tool for breaking down those divisions and building more uh, less enmity and more sort of uh, at least neighborliness. Yeah. And how did you, as a as a youth minister, use that relationship you had with the other youth pastor? And then how did you use something like hip hop? Yeah. So so when I lived with my good friend Marcos Gomez, who's now live he lives in um, Long Beach, California. My kids became his kids, and his kids became my kids. So the kids yeah. that that knew me. You know, I would introduce them to, to, to him and, and vice versa. And so when I would see this community, when I would see the students in the neighborhood, I would know their names. I try to know their names. And we did intentional um, ministry things together. We, yeah. we really tried to be intentional, whether it was a community cleanup or, hey, we're going to have a movie. Let's come. Let's, let's watch a movie. Let's play basketball. Both of yeah. us had, you know, we had a gymnasium on the North Rondale side and we had, you know, uh, a basketball courts on the outside on, on, on the little village side. So we were really intentional about that. We also took a group of African-American students, a part of our ministry, and a group of, uh, of Latinx students, a part of uh, not only his ministry, but also neighboring uh, churches in, in, um, in Little Village. And we went to Mexico and we looked at the African presence in Mexico. And mm-hmm. what we did before that, we, we had these community dinners where we had students eat dinner at, at, and families in, in Little Village and vice versa. They came to, and students in Little Village came to North Lawndale. So we did this for about six months before we went to Mexico. So we built this strong community of like, yo, we're breaking bread. We were learning. Um, we're unlearning some things. And it was, it was one of the most powerful things we ever did. Like we, we just went there to see the presence. We saw the monuments, but we also, students African-Americans saw Mexicans that are darker, darker than them, even darker. They're like, yo, it just blew their mind to see another uh, a person of African descent speaking Spanish fluently and being, being a Mexican and vice versa. Our Latinx students never saw so many, you know, African descent, like Mexicans who yeah. it, it flipped our, all of our perspectives upside down. And from that, my friend Marcos, you know, he knew that I was a DJ. And so he's like, yo, man, I, I have a youth. She's, she's having a quinceanera and, and uh, they're looking for a DJ. Would you want a DJ? And I'm like, well, yo, I've never done a quinceanera before. Let's do it. It was so beautiful because, again, I became their youth pastor, you know, to, you know I became his kid's youth pastor and vice versa. And even me doing that quinceanera, so many other parents and community members like, oh, that's the pastor who DJs. And so it was like I was able to use music in order to bridge um, bridge gaps, and even even later on, when I started volunteering, and I became the uh, high school uh, track and field coach for Little Village High School, um, it was like, y'all remember you, 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 you were the DJ that did the quinceanera, and you were a pastor, and you were, and you were a track coach, and so it just, I use music everywhere I go. But I mean, um, but it just really sparked sparked a lot of relationships, and then. A lot of students like hell can, and parents. Can you can you DJ? Music and the arts can be one of those things that you know cuts through cultural divides. I mean that make people find common ground and the things that we've maybe been taught to be fearful of somebody who looks different than us. Right. But then we realize they like the same kind of music I like. Or right. Like, I like to dance and they like to dance, or like right. I like yeah. basketball and they like basketball. You know. So it's sometimes the simple things that help us see the humanity in other people. Uh, but I, yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing that story.
it's just cool that we're just a part of this community that just tried to minister in whatever way you were very open to whatever God seemed to be presenting you with as in terms of an opportunity. Yeah. And a lot of this wasn't taught. I mean, it was all people say, man, how did you do this? I mean, like this wasn't taught, you know, undergrad. We, we, as we went, we created and, um, you know, infused our own elements. And so, um, which, which made it even more, kind of beautiful and and a God thing. The culture piece was not part of that, you know? And that's missions though, right? Like you can't teach people what they're going to confront in terms of the history of a place or the cultural context and what some of the tensions were. All you can go and try to do is just try to be open to what God seems to be presenting you with in terms of the opportunity to build relationships. Like it all kind of grows out of that. Mm -hmm. And the tools will emerge. The tool could be the health clinic. The tool could be the gymnasium and basketball. The tool could be music or hip hop. And there's a million other tools. So trying to memorize or know all the tools, that's not the point. The point is the relationships and treating one another with love and respect. Um, And that seems to me to be a message that is one that we all need to kind of like just reflect on right now as we confront a world that's got a ton of problems and a lot of tension on multiple fronts, inequalities with a global health pandemic, uh, racial tensions between races and confronting our history of racial injustice in this country. Maybe a really good place to start is by loving your neighbor, (laughs) whoever you come into contact with, maybe they're the same race as you or not, Maybe they have a different political position than you. Okay, that doesn't make them your enemy. Um, Somebody who's different than you racially, that doesn't make them your enemy. Try to get to know somebody who's different than you and, and genuinely build a relationship. And a lot of beautiful things will come forth from that. Yeah, for sure, man. I agree. I mean, we touched on racial justice and I don't, I don't by any means expect you to speak on behalf of all African-Americans or all black people, but it's a different, you know, season of life for you because you're a father, you're married. What is this current season of, you know, post Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and just the protests and everything that's been going on? um, How are you doing and what's that been like for you? Yeah, so it's been a hard season um, in the midst of COVID. You know, I I love what Dr. Otis Moss III says, you know, you know not, we're not only battling COVID-19, but we're also um, battling COVID-1619, COVID right? And so this, mm-hmm. this, this idea that, you know, we as Africans, um, you know, who have been enslaved and coming to this country, we, we've, been, we've been fighting for equality since we got here. And so it, it's an ongoing, ongoing fight. It's been very, very, very hard. But I think, you know, speaking to my father, who is 82 now, um, he, he, he said, Terrence, I've never seen such a collaboration between Latinx and, and white and, and um, Asians and people groups coming together and fighting um, for, for justice. He said, that's one thing I, I hadn't seen. I, he said, mm. so a little bit of it during Dr. King's civil rights time. My dad was uh, 28, 27. Dr. King was, was assassinated. And so he, mm. he, he's seen a lot. So we, we as a family, we protest. I wanted my my children to not only to understand what was going on, but I wanted them to feel what was going on as well. We are yeah. a family uh, that talks about race. We are interracial family. My my wife is Asian Indian, um, mm. just as dark as me. Sometimes people think she's African American, but she's not. Mm-hmm. And so we we we've always talked about race and ethnicity 
in class, um, in equality yeah. we, to, to our children, our two girls. And so they saw it, they felt it, um, and we'll continue talking about that. But I think, you know, I love what um, Ibram Kendi uh, talks about in his book, um, being anti-racist. Like, we, we've moved a little bit from, and my, I say we, myself, I, I, I enjoy, I think protests are really where it's at and it's important, but I'm into the policy changing. I, yeah. I'm not into convincing people that racism is real. So I, I have, uh, in my own context where we live now, um, in Skokie, Illinois, we've been really pushing policies for our children's school and our school district, and also policy where I'm at, when I'm, where I'm um, employed at North Park University. So I'm, I'm all about policy and change and what's concrete and, and uh, not trying to persuade people to feel uh, and, and feel empathy and feel sorry for, for black people or people of color or myself. Yeah, so you're, I mean, you're learning some things too, even though you were a, a pastor and you've, you've had your own experience of racial reconciliation and working on those issues in the church and, you know, part of a church community in a neighborhood you were part of for over a decade, but you're learning new things about racial justice and about racial reconciliation. And I, mm-hmm. and I think you and I talked before this about, you know, what are some of the things you're reading or learning or thinking about? And you and I both, you know, have been reading Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. And mm-hmm. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff that's been really helpful for me in that book. That's the message, right? Again, it begins with kind of looking in the mirror. Like all of us need to look in the mirror and just say like, what do I need to be learning? And I've found that to be really powerful too, that that all of Kendi's lessons point back to policy. But it's also challenging because that's a lot of hard work, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not surprising that some people are pushing back against that because let's face it, anytime any of us look in the mirror and see something we don't like or see something that just seems really overwhelming, it's easy to kind of just want to say like, well, that's too hard or that's not my problem, that's somebody else's problem. Right, exactly. There has been people fighting for justice, I mean, years. And I think, I think this was just a perfect storm, right? With COVID, there's no, sure. no sports going on, no you know, um, nothing to distract us. And so this really caused a lot of people to, um, to just like, yo, this is not right, you know? And I think also too, Aaron, um, you know, as we, we are living in a, a more increased multi-ethnic, mm-hmm. multi-racial society, uh, I think there's more and more people who are like, who have grown up with, 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 with classmates and neighborhoods. Um, even though we're still segregated, I think that there's, there's, this, there's this like, hey, I know somebody Who's a, I know a black person. I know someone of color. And, you know, this is not right. So it's like, yo, you can't be silent. Obviously, there's pushback. And um, change is, is hard for people. But I think what we want, I think, black, I don't speak for all black people, but it's equal rights. Like, we want, we want, we want justice. And it's not like we want extra justice, right? <laughs> like, like, we want extra. No, we want equal. Um, everyone has to do their part. So we see institutions, Christian institutions, businesses, um, you name it. Because I think when we think about it, racism has affected every single, every single institution and in, in, in particularly in this country, like every facet has been affected by racism. So yeah. um, we have to do an internal audit and, and, and have the deep questions and, but also what's the solid changes we can do and that comes with policy change. 
it strikes me too how those things are big macro issues, but they're also local issues. You know, mm-hmm. like the more local it gets, again, it, it begins with getting to know your neighbors and it gets begins maybe with getting to know what's going on in your own community. Something like defund the police seems like this huge national issue, this huge topic. Um, and some people are pushing back against that concept. Yeah. You know, I, I think maybe a different way of, you know, that maybe that's the marching slogan, kind of like Black Lives Matter, which can mean different things for different people and can mean different things in different communities. Maybe the most simple way to think about what people are asking for, though, is like, are there ways that we can use our money that's being used in law enforcement more effectively? Could we get tools that are consistent across the country, something like body cameras that would just allow for more transparency in policing? You know, so again, these issues... Anytime that there's change, there are certainly people that are fearful of that change. And at the same time, there are people that are trying to exploit a volatile situation to their own gain. And, you know, so there's plenty of people in power that are fearful of losing power, but there's also people that are interested in exploiting this situation to gain power. And so there's a, it's a complicated situation. There's a lot of dynamics going on. So you're now not at Lawndale anymore. You're now in higher ed, North Park University. And what's, what's your role at North Park? And what's it like uh, being in that role in this particular environment? Yeah. So 2016, fall of 2016, I came to North Park um, on a part-time basis, just just as the athletic chaplain. And um, last um, last fall, they asked me to be the uh, campus co-pastor and also the um, athletic chaplain as well. And so I've been serving in that role since September, uh, October of last year. Of last year. So, um, yeah, it's an extension of youth ministry, I think. North Park University is, is located in Albany Park, which is a north, um, the north side, the, one of the last neighborhoods before you get into the suburbs of, of, of Chicago. So um, very diverse, one of the diverse uh, zip codes in Chicago. And um, we have a large LGBTQ community nearby. Um, so we're right on the North Shore. And um, so it's, it's, we have students from all, all walks of life. We're, it's a Christian university, but 60% of our students are, are, are commuters that live in the Chicagoland area or in the city. And we have Muslim population, a Jewish population that goes to our school, Catholics and other, other people who, uh, who don't even can confess the faith. So I, I love where I'm at because it really, our, our, our job and I, where I'm located, my department, University Ministries, um, we really try to love our neighbors, our, our students, and to show them and teach them who this Christ is. So we're doing a lot of unlearning and relearning. A lot of their understanding of Christ has been, um, you know, oppressive or whitewashed, the idea of who, who, you know, so we've really been trying to just show a different approach, who, who, who really Jesus is, and, and, and coming and looking at um, the person of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and the people of Jesus. So I love it. I love it. It's challenging, but um, I love when students are like, you know what? I ain't really down with God like that. I don't really <laughs> like the church yeah. is black. And I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. And so, sure. um, so it, it's it's youth ministry on steroids because uh, you know, <laughs> a lot of immaturity is still happening. But but I I love that the students push me. Um, they're honest. They don't hide back. Um, yeah. We have a great we have a great group of students who are Christians. And they struggle with how to share their faith because what they've been taught is, you know, like a compartmentalized kind of in self, also all about me, individual faith. And we're like, no, we got to be communal. 
we got to be community. And so we're really challenging them. What does it mean to be community? So it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard but good community that I love. And I've had an opportunity also to teach a class for freshmen. And so, um, so cool. yeah, man, I, I love it. I don't fit the stereotypical pastor, man, who, who yeah. I don't look like the, you know, I don't wear suits and all that, but students are like, wow, okay, you, you the campus pastor? Okay. And that's cool. I mean, that's a testament to North Park. I mean, because it, the, the Christian tradition that it comes out of is not, I mean, it's a pretty white <laughs> Yeah, it's tradition so, too, right? Evangelical Covenant Church, yep, to huge Swedish um, yeah. background. So yeah, very, very white. But they've been, you know, kind of saying this is where our campus is at and we're in this dynamic, diverse neighborhood in Chicago. And even though we're a Christian university, that doesn't mean that Muslims and um, people who are LGBTQ or, you know, like it's, it's an open campus in the sense that... Um, Yes, we're a Christian university, but we're very open to anyone coming here and learning about their own spirituality and faith. And again, that seems to be a very sort of a missional approach about just come as you are. But in the interest of time, uh, we should probably try to bring this to a close. So um, what are some of the things that you've been reading that you you know, would like to share with the audience? To be honest, um, I've been reading, I'm in my doctoral class, working on my doctorate. And okay. so I've been reading a lot of, of books that, that have to do with my doctoral. But I, I have been reading um, Kendi's book, which I really love. And yeah. uh, I, one thing I love about that book is because it, it's for everybody, right? It, it, everybody can, can work on being anti-racist. And it's, it's kind of a, it, it's a, it's a continuation. It's not like one and done, I did that, I'm, I'm good. It's like, no. Like you, you, you can always do, but you can do more work and better work. And so I love that book. I've also been reading um, Austin Channing Brown. Yeah. Uh, I'm still here. Uh, she's an alum of North Park University and oh, an African-American cool. woman. And so she came to our university a few years ago. Um, but I've been chewing on that book. And I think it's really, really, uh, it's, it's interesting how books become more prevalent and more richer as they, as you know, they came, came out in 2018, but now it's just like one of the best New York Times bestseller. Um, yeah. I'm also reading a lot of uh, James Baldwin. I think James Baldwin was such a head, head of his time, man. Um, mm-hmm. I'm Not Your Negro by James Baldwin. I think um, just reading his writings, man, he was, he was, it's so relevant today, man, about, you know, the fact that he, he could see, he said that, you know, I, I can criticize this country because I love it so much, you know, mm-hmm. I can be criti- yeah, critical of this country because I love it so much. And I, I feel the same way. So, yeah, those are kind of the three that I've been really having an opportunity to, to take my time and read a little bit more. Um, but, yeah, man, I think it's – and also, too, there's been some documentaries I've been watching, too. I've been re- – yeah. I went back over and watched 13. Sure, yeah. So uh, doctoral uh, work is a, sort of a low-residency program at North Park. So while you're doing your full-time job and you've got, you know, dad and husband responsibilities, you're also working on your doctorate. So can we expect some sort of, uh, you know, wonderful 3,000-page, uh, you know, life work about ministry and how to use hip-hop and break down the barriers of culture? Like, should we expect a New York Times bestseller coming from you sometime soon? I don't know about New York Times bestseller, but it's going to be DJ Rock On's best, best work um, I can do. But it, 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 it's, it's dealing with um, incorporating elements of hip-hop and preaching something that I just have not seen enough of and how we, how we are continuing to be a multi-ethnic or wanting to be a multi-ethnic church, but multi-ethnic, the, the, the diversity is not being 
exemplified in even in worship. And so, so I am mm -hmm. uh, attempting to do that. You know, it's 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 a it's an M div. I mean, excuse me, it's a D men in preaching. And so, looking at how we can incorporate um, hip hop into preaching. And so, not just the music, but also the culture, which is a lot of that's another story for another day. But a lot of people don't. They think about hip hop. They think about just the music, but they forget that mm -hmm. it's a culture and it has a lot more than just the music. So that's what I'm working on. Cool. Well, we'll look forward to to following that more about that. So if people want to find out more about North Park, I'll put a bunch of the stuff that we've talked about. Some of the books that you mentioned. Uh, you know, I'll put the Lawndale uh, Church. You know, I'll put links to Milligan. I'll put links to. Uh, you know, where you're at now at North Park University, but what if people want to find you online um, and they want to hear more of this, some of your hip hop work, or just they're interested, they, they've been struck by something you said and would just like to reach out to you personally. Yeah, so I'm on, I'm on Instagram, IG, um, the real DJ rock on. Um, real DJ rock on, all right. R-O-C-K, okay. the real DJ rock on, and so okay. also, I'm on Facebook. Those are two primary areas. Um, so Terrence Gazin on Facebook. Um, but I also just real quick, another, another, another two good books I have to also shout out yeah. to is yeah. Church Forsaken by Jonathan, Jonathan Brooks, good friend of mine. We went to seminary together. He's on yeah. the South side and um, really, really dope book. Chapter seven. I'm in that chapter when we talk about hip hop and how really the church has forsaken culture and one of the chapters is that they first the church has forsaken hip-hop culture mm -hmm. and then another book good book that I, it's a classic book came out in 2005 it's called the hip-hop church um it's with uh, uh phil jackson and dr ephraim smith and it's a phenomenal book about the history of hip-hop but also ways that the church can also incorporate hip-hop and the way the church there's so many similar um movements the church really has can learn from and yeah. um, so those are great. And also, and the Firehouse Community Arts Center, which is located in North Lawndale, they took an old real, real life Chicago uh, fire station and they converted it to a community arts center. They're taking people who've been in gangs and doing all like really hardcore, like hardcore, hardcore ministry. And they're, they're really helping them to, to self-sustaining ministry. Self-sustaining ministry, I think, is something missing in urban communities. You know, a lot of urban urban um, ministries they get grants, and once those grants go, the yeah. ministry or, or the the program grows. But what they're trying to do is build self sustaining uh, men and women. So like they're teaching culinary brothers and sisters who are learning culinary skills, and they can take that trade and they can do whatever they can. Open. Some have opened up their own, um, you know, kind of um, small small restaurants, and and mm -hmm. so I really think one of the things they're doing is something that's missing in a lot of urban ministries, self-sustaining. So the firehouse, communityartcenter.org, uh, you can look them up. They're doing some phenomenal job. And Phil was my colleague for 12 years. And so I, I, that's why I, I love him. And he also officiated um, my wife and our wedding uh, 14 years ago next month. And also his daughter, I was, I, was, I was her youth pastor and I officiated her wedding about three years ago. So just, just all this, this crazy, crazy love, crazy ministry, man. So. Yeah. That's the goodness of relationship, right? As it, yes. it, it brings about this, these beautiful connections and a lot of goodness comes forth from that. Well, I can attest to that. This has been a wonderful conversation. You gave uh, people who might listen to this podcast just a lot of 
resources to turn to, to maybe think differently about how they do the work they do, or maybe just some things to look into about thinking differently about how our communities operate and how we can make them places that are more welcoming and, and, and life-giving for all. I'm glad to have a friend like you who can challenge me to think about things through different lenses. Thanks for, uh, thanks for being a guest on the Unleashed Generosity podcast. We might have so many cool things to talk about. I may have to have you back for like a round two next season or something. Hey, that's, that's all good with me, man. Hey, and I just want to give you a shout out. Big ups to you, man. Thank you for your friendship as well and um, you know, having me on. But more importantly, man, just the, the work that you've done and you're continuing to do. Much love, man. Tell the fam I said what's up. All right. Peace. Peace. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in for episode four of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Terrence as well as his music. Appreciate his thoughtfulness, appreciate his service and his love uh, for ministry and for others uh, wherever he happens to be serving. You can find us at our website, which is www.unleashedgenerosity.org. And until next time, unleash your own generosity. Mm-hmm.